The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, now that we're in the month of November and beyond All Saints Day, as we inch toward the end of the liturgical calendar, you'll notice the focus of our scriptures begins to turn toward Jesus' teaching on his future return or second coming and the judgment that will follow. And our gospel passage today about the parable of the ten virgins has some sense of this, as verse 5 describes the delay of the bridegroom in the parable. And in verse 13, Jesus warns his listening disciples to watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour his return will occur. But before we get too far into what to make of this text, let me explain some of the elements of first century weddings present in this parable that are crucial for understanding what's going on and yet are foreign to the weddings of today, so might be easy to not catch. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, after a woman became betrothed to a man, they would immediately separate from each other for a period of 12 months so that the woman could prepare for married life while the man prepared a place for them to live. Then after that year-long wait... When the wedding finally happened, it would be a week-long celebration with the marriage ceremony occurring in the evening of the first of the seven days, the evening of day one. And that first day, the wedding day, is what our parable describes. Typically, the daytime of that first day would be filled with dancing for the bridesmaids, which the passage here refers to as virgins. They were unmarried women who'd been selected to be bridesmaids. But the marriage ceremony itself wouldn't occur until that evening, sometime after dark, 
a groomsman would announce with a cry that the groom was coming to retrieve his bride. And once the groom arrived at the home of the bride's family, his bride would emerge with her face veiled, and the virgin bridesmaids would then lead the bride and groom in a procession of light back to the groom's house. That's what the lamps are for. Our translation says the bridesmaids use lamps, but they were actually more like torches, right? Topped with oil-soaked rags for burning. But when the procession of light arrived back at the groom's home, all the wedding guests would be assembled there because that was the critical moment and place where the bride and groom would come under the wedding canopy and be married. Then, after that, the newlyweds would proceed privately to the marriage chamber to consummate the marriage, after which the groom would emerge to confirm the marriage had been consummated. And seven days of wedding festivities would then follow. And although it's not important for today's parable, I'll add that what may surprise you is that for the length of those seven days that followed, the bride would remain hidden in her chamber. Lots of separation between the two before spending the whole, their whole lives together. Only on the seventh day would the groom bring his bride out with her veil removed for the first time, at least, you know, first time in all the wedding uh, days, so that all could see who his bride was, could see his bride. So that's a little background on first century weddings, maybe more than you needed to know, but Returning to the setting of the parable, the wedding day, day one of the seven-day wedding feast, Jesus describes there being ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. But he says five of them were foolish. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. And what sets these two groups apart is that when the foolish took their lamps, they took no extra oil with them. But the wise took flasks of extra oil for their lamps. And later that night, when the bridegroom was delayed and came later than expected, this would prove to be a critical mistake for the foolish bridesmaids and, of course, a wise one for the other five, a wise decision. Verse 6 says the bridegroom delayed until midnight. But then at that point, there was a cry. A herald announced, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And then the ten virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Right? Got everything fired up again. But by this time, the foolish five were short on oil. So they began to plead with the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So the wise ones didn't want to run out and have no one have any, any light for the procession, right? Five's better than none. So the foolish women did so. They went out to buy more oil, but this caused them to miss the ceremony and subsequently to miss out on the rest of the multiple-day feast that followed. Now, at the outset of this passage, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like 
this parable and proceeds to tell the parable. So if this parable represents the lives of believers, we all are invited to live now in the kingdom of God. If that's, if that's what this parable represents, and what distinguishes the wise virgins from the foolish ones is that the five wise had each brought jars of spare oil for their lamps, we may wonder then, what does this oil or having oil, this extra oil, represent? Well, as you might imagine, there have been a number, a number of suggestions. In fact, scholar Frederick Bruner helpfully observes that our other lectionary passages today reveal three different possibilities for what this oil could represent. And I'll explain those just briefly. Our first lesson this morning was from Amos 5. And the prophet Amos lived at a time before the fall of Judah or Israel, when God's people may have been faithful in worshiping him on the Sabbath, but the rest of their lives had been consumed with worldly things, with self-indulgence and enriching themselves at the expense of others. Economic disparity between the rich and the poor among them was at an all-time high. And so Amos is speaking on the Lord's behalf when he says, I hate your feasts. I hate when you keep the religious feasts. I take no delight in your assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs, your worship, and to the melody of your harps. I won't listen. But let justice roll down like waters. That's what I want, the Lord says. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, God cares a lot more about lives, the lives of his people being characterized by love of neighbor and love of him through righteousness, not just through song or words, than he cares about diligence or passion and worship. Seeking justice, remember, is the public form of loving our neighbor. And righteous obedience is how we personally love God, by obeying his commands. And so from the perspective of Amos here, or God in Amos, the oil and the lamps is the two greatest commandments. Keeping those. Love. But then, moving to Psalm 70, there we read a prayer of humble faith of the psalmist in the face of difficulty turning to the Lord and asking God for help. Psalm 70 more demonstrates faith. And then finally, the words of Paul we heard from his church letter to the church in Thessalonica. We heard him exhort the believers to affix their hope on the promise of the Lord's return and to encourage one another with the assurance that from that day forth, they, we, will be with God forever. So the the second lesson today from Thessalonians indicates hope. These three passages then each seem to suggest something different for what the oil in the parable might represent. Faith, hope, or love. And which of these does the oil represent? Perhaps the answer is yes. All three. However, it may be wiser for us to step back from such a literal one-to-one analogy of what this oil means and to consider instead the significance of these five wise virgins virgins ensuring that they had oil to spare. 
the significance of that is that what really what that really means is that their highest concern for these five wise virgins was what was fulfilling their role as bridesmaids fulfilling the role of honoring the groom and this is in great contrast to the five who were foolish now surely the foolish five would have been delighted to be selected as bridesmaids right I guess. (laughs) It was a great honor, right? But the wedding night, what that wedding night reveals is that they seem to have given little thought to the actual responsibility of that honor. The responsibility of essentially glorifying the groom, making sure he looks good, right? And he has this bright procession. The Greek word for foolish here can also be translated as useless, And ultimately, that's what these five bridesmaids are. Ultimately, it's their lack of concern for the bridegroom that renders each one of them not only useless, but to miss out on the feast where they would have been among the honored guests. And so putting aside any attempts to identify specifically what does the oil represent, because we we really shouldn't always, we shouldn't treat parables as analogies. They can be analogous. They can have analogies, but putting that aside, it's probably more helpful to consider that what sets these wise virgins apart from the foolish ones is their concern for what's most important for them as bridesmaids, in their identity as bridesmaids. Their highest priority is fulfilling that role, and their actions show that that's their highest priority, right? It's not just lip service. And so if we turn this parable to us, to our lives, For us to be like the wise bridesmaids, for us to keep watch as Jesus exhorts the disciples to in the final verse, would mean to keep our focus on what matters, given our identity and our calling to follow Christ. The extent that we are watching, the extent that we are like these wise bridesmaids, is the extent that we protect anything from eclipsing the honor we've been given as servants of the King of Kings. And yet these foolish virgins' failure is a sobering reminder of how easily we can lose that focus and thus exclude ourselves from the blessed kingdom life we've been invited into. And again, I'm not even talking about eternal judgment here. I'm just talking about getting off the path of walking before the Lord and following Him. And I would imagine that for many of us, the past week has probably been a test of this. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe a few of you have lived under a rock this week in a cave. Right, but this election, with all its buildup, a roller coaster election night, if there ever was one, and no shortage of delay, I think we can say. I would imagine it may have been quite revealing to us of ways that perhaps, quite positively, we have progressed to be more spiritually mature like those wise bridesmaids. 
But maybe there were also times where we found ourselves reacting this week in ways that upon reflection reveal what we might call some areas of continued growth, needed growth. And after all, that's what any spiritual test is supposed to do, right? It should reveal where we have made progress and gains, maturing in the Lord, but also where further progress is needed, further growth is needed. And I know this week did that some for me. There were moments, whether on election night or in the subsequent days, that I was so consumed by what was going on on the national scene and doom-scrolling compulsively social media, that it sure felt like there was, there was some idolatry mixed in there for me, right? That I was making these earthly matters ultimate. Well, on the other hand, there were also moments where I was able to check myself and engage what was going on, but with some healthy detachment, Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a sign of spiritual maturity and remaining faithful in Christ should have looked like being unemotional or apathetic to what happened. Not at all. That's not the picture of faithfulness. We aren't Stoics, right? As I read one pastor comment, helpfully, I think, he said, emotions aren't evil, even emotions about an election, right? He says they do not display... Such emotions do not display a lack of faith in God to have emotions. And as I said last week, I would never mean to suggest that this election was inconsequential for our country or that it wouldn't have real impact on people's lives and even our own lives in some temporal ways. But as followers of Jesus, the difference for us as followers of Jesus is it is never ultimate. It is never ultimate. And some of that bad fruit that can come when, you know, that can signify to us that we've made it ultimate or that we are mishandling the circumstances we're living through, that can be like finding ourselves lashing out at others, right? Or lashing out at your television, I don't know. (laughs) Throwing your phone against the wall right? Or getting into an an us versus them mentality, not being able to be present with others around us, right? So my daughter asked me something eight times before I finally hear her, right? And I'm sure you could offer some other examples of the bad fruit of idolizing politics. So I would say that for me, my, my test results were mixed, But here's the good news. The good news is that to any extent that we have allowed ourselves to be carried away into sin by the things of the world, the good news is is that in Christ there is always repentance. There is always forgiveness. There is always the opportunity to start over and to return our eyes to trusting Him and to glorifying Him. And this morning, I want to call our attention to one final passage that can recenter us, I think, and redirect our hearts 
to where they need to be, particularly in this time, all the time, but particularly in this time, and also can identify some symptoms of getting off track. Included in your bulletin today, or I'll ask Justin to put up on the screen, Colossians chapter 3. There, Paul begins with this exhortation to the life we've been called into. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seek what he has for you, where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This really puts forth what we need to do as we enter into our days to keep perspective. But it also shows us where we can return, right? What we can do when we feel like we've kind of gotten out of sorts, off the path. You know, no matter what time it is in the day, we can always kind of start over. Return our hearts back to what's important again. Well, then Paul, in the next paragraph, describes some signs that we need to do that, right? Some red flags. By listing sins that can so easily entangle us when we become consumed by worldly circumstances or when we begin idolizing earthly things. He writes in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths and keyboards. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but instead Christ is all and in all. The warning of the foolish bridesmaids is that when we allow preoccupation or being consumed with earthly things to compromise our faithfulness to Christ and our focus on Him as our King, we not only risk bearing bad fruit for the kingdom, but we are the ones whose lives are the most diminished, right? We're the ones that pay. Whose soul is most injured when we delve into lust or harbor contempt or exaggerate the truth for our side, the expense of the other? Us, ours, our soul. We're the ones hurt the most. And so Paul concludes with some practical ways that we can get back on track. In verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord is forgiving you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name that is through the person and the power and the grace, right, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father through him. You know, I would recommend, even in the coming week, this passage, Colossians 3, right? If you find yourself needing to be spiritually nourished, just turn to this. But this final paragraph is Paul's way of providing a more concrete and specific picture of what it looks like to live like the wise bridesmaids or to get back to living like them rather than like the foolish ones. So this morning, I want to invite you just to consider, to do just a little self-examination in your pew or on your couch or wherever you are, to do some self-examination, whether there's any way that you veered away from the path of the kingdom recently. In our liturgy, in a bit, we'll have the confession and an opportunity to acknowledge that before God and to hear his forgiveness and to live into the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And then we'll move into the Eucharistic feast, into Holy Communion, where it will be declared, behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of those bridesmaids were invited. Whether we enter or not, each day. It's really up to us. But even if you've already managed to repent and get back on track, I would just say these next days, the days ahead are going to be very challenging for us, citizens of this country. So this is an opportunity then to to gird up our loins in Holy Communion today, to ask for God's help to remain in Him and in the blessed life of the kingdom, come what may. So I invite you this morning to join together in confessing your sinful, our sinful fragility and our need for His grace to help us be like those wise virgins years ago so that we might go forth with our lamps burning bright today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.